Well, I, it seems as though uh, the sermon has been stolen from me once again this morning. It always happens here. The children's talks are, are so fulsome. It covers the ground that I'm going to cover again. But we'll honour the Word of God by reading from the Beatitudes. I don't call them Beatitudes. I call them beautiful attitudes. And uh, we're reading from Matthew chapter 5. And it's a privilege to launch this series And we'll read the first 12 verses. Now when he saw the crowd, that's Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I want to uh, illustrate that first beautiful attitude, or beatitude. I, I love that humble bee, don't you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And amazingly, I guess the Lord must have been inspiring both of us because I want to read from Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. There was no uh, liaison between the two of us. Isn't that amazing? I'm choosing to illustrate that in this very same parable. Luke 18 and verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told his parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. It is an amazing fact that the world over, the value of the teachings of Jesus are appreciated even by those people that don't call themselves Christians. They see these beatitudes or beautiful attitudes that uh, can be the cornerstone of life. Of course, Jesus told it because he wanted to show us how we might enter into life in all of its fullness. A French philosopher said, the whole world is in a mad quest for security and happiness. The majority of people are are, are waiting for their ship to come in or to win the lottery. If only, they think, if only 
I had a better house. If, if only I could have a better job. If only I had more money in the bank. If only, if only, if only. But do these things that people crave for, do they guarantee real happiness? We've all known people that have had everything and they've been as miserable as sin. I know someone that won the lottery and ended her own life by committing suicide. A man went to see a psychiatrist about his depression. Doctor, he said, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm despondent, and I'm miserable. Can you please help me to sort my head out? And after suggesting a few things, the, the psychiatrist, the doctor said, I, I tell you what, you may have heard that there's a, a circus in town, and everyone is going there because there's a brilliant clown there, and everyone leaves better. To which, of course, the man said, I am that clown. Our materialistic world rushes on. It's eternal quest for the fountain of happiness. The more knowledge that we acquire, the less wisdom we seem to have. The more economic security we gain, the more boredom we generate the more pleasure we seem to enjoy, the less satisfied and content we are with life. Yet inside of us all, there is that voice that says, surely there is more to life than this. And so people chase straws in the wind looking for the answer. But the blessedness that brings us enduring worth to life is not this superficial happiness that is dependent upon circumstances. It's the joy and contentment that fills the soul even in the most distressing circumstances. I went to visit a widow that lost her husband of 60 years. They'd known such love together and yet she was radiant. And she was smiling. Was she glad that her husband had gone? Of course not. But she was kept by that joy that only Jesus can give. And that's the difference, you know, between happiness and joy. You know that happiness comes from the same root as happenings. It depends on good things happening to make you happy. Whereas joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit that only Jesus can give in this life in all of its fullness. It's the kind of joy that grins when things go wrong and smiles through tears. This is the blessedness that Jesus offers us in this Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're concentrating on the first, and if you like, the foundation, beautiful attitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what kind of poverty did Jesus have in mind? Did he mean those that had little possessions? Was he saying that really the best way to know fulfillment in life is to rid yourself of all of your possessions? No, he wasn't saying that at all. There's another kind of poverty, a spiritual poverty. Do you remember 
in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is writing through John letters to the seven churches that are spread through Asia Minor. And there was a very proud church at Laodicea because they had everything. You know, they had a great building. They had the best worship group and the best worship leader. And you can imagine, they had money in the bank, they had everything. And yet he writes to them in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. And this is what he says. You say that you are rich. And I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus saw. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea was proud. And you know, it is pride that is the opposite to this poverty in spirit. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The proud Pharisee. You know, when Jesus told this story, he was, of course, shock and revulsion. You saw the face of the Pharisee in that little video clip. He was telling the story against the Pharisees. You see, it's the classic story of the goody and the baddie. Every story has a goody and a baddie. But this is where the kingdom of God, the standards of the kingdom, are turned upside down, topsy-turvy. Because in the story that Jesus tells, the goody, the Pharisee, is the baddie. And the baddie, who is the tax collector, is the goody. Because he knew the state of his own soul. And he was truly sorry. And he wanted to know something of the grace and the mercy of God. You see, to every beatitude, beautiful attitude, there is something in us that violates it. And the thing that is in all of us at some time or another that violates this beatitude is that sin of pride. You mark pride comes before a fall. So where, what can we say about this beatitude? Three things. First of all, we've got to be aware of our spiritual poverty. We've got to know the truth about ourselves. <laughs> the tax collector's prayer was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, the translation is wrong here. I know my New Testament Greek, and there's a definite article there. You know what he was praying? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. You see, he recognized he, he, he was the greatest of sinners. He didn't deserve the mercy of God. And Jesus gave us another dramatic picture about a man who had a mistaken idea about poverty and riches. Remember the story Jesus told about the rich man and his barns? Oh, he was a successful farmer. He'd acquired so much wealth and the barn was full. So he said, I'm going to pull down this barn and I'm going to build a, a greater one. And the Lord had to say to him, beware. For this night, this night, your soul will be required of you. He was going to be called account at the eternal judgment seat. It never occurred to him that a soul cannot survive on things. Now, our bodies have legitimate desires. But the Bible teaches that we are more than body. We're a living soul. And I love the way that Solomon puts it in 
Ecclesiastes. God has put eternity in our hearts. Do you know, when Solomon starts writing Ecclesiastes, he starts saying, oh, everything is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. But by the time he gets to chapter 3, he brings God into the picture. He sees that there is a time and a season for everything, but only when God is in the picture. And in that setting, he says, God has put eternity in our hearts. There is that sense in all of us that there is something more in life than this. And that something more is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. Jesus is the only one that can meet the deepest longings of our hearts. Our souls were created in the image of God and the blessedness of the kingdom of God can only come to those who are aware that they have violated God's holy law and returned to him in repentance and faith. Who amongst us hasn't been proud at some time or another? Now, there is a legitimate pride. I'm proud to be a Christian. In fact, the Bible tells us not to be ashamed that we're Christians. Of course, there's a legitimate legitimate pride. A job well done. You've done a a good DIY job. And you stand back and you take pride in your work, don't you? There's nothing wrong in that, so long as you attribute the glory to God. Because I am a Christian only by the grace of God, and so are you. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. There's no room for boasting. So that no one can boast. If we've got gifts that enable us to do DIY, well, give thanks to God. Yes, stand back and admire it. But to God be the glory. He's given you the gifts to do that. But we so often take pride in what we are, the way that we look. The things that we do better than other people, that is the pride that is sin. The first step to a life of blessedness is the realization of our spiritual poverty. The poor in spirit do not measure the worth of life in earthly possessions, but in terms of spiritual realities. The Bible teaches that our souls are all sick with the disease of sin, and it's this sin that separates And only when sin is confessed and sin is repented of is there wholeness. Thank God for Calvary. Thank God he went all the way to Calvary so that you and I might be forgiven our pride and all the other things. Remember that old chorus used to sing it here. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. A way that is open and you may go in when you come as a sinner to Jesus. That's the first step of entering into life in all of its fullness, this life of blessedness. Be humble. (laughs) Be aware. It's by grace that we are what we are. And we thank him. But secondly, we must accept the provision that God has made for us in Jesus Christ. If by God's grace he brings us to that place where we Like that tax collector, we realize that I'm the sinner that needs mercy. We have to confess it and receive the provision. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He knew that he was a sinner, but he dared to believe, though he wouldn't look to heaven, that there could be mercy even for him.
God is able to meet our spiritual needs. But only in one way, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. The death of Jesus, you know, was no mere accident. It was an act of a loving God to reconcile us, fallen sinners, to him. When Peter wrote his epistle, the key word in his epistles was the word precious. He says that we are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but we are redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. Over and over again, Peter spoke about the preciousness of Jesus. Is Jesus precious to you? He is the most precious thing in the world to me. I say that with my wife here. She's the second most precious. But he is the most precious thing in all the world to me. And he is to her as well. He had discovered, as many of us here have discovered, that it's only through the precious blood of Jesus that our sins can be forgiven and we can be brought near to God. If you're aware that you're a sinner and you've accepted the salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus, then surely he is precious to you. But God requires something of us. He requires that we come as that tax collector did and to confess our spiritual poverty. And more than that, to renounce our sins. Did you notice in that video clip, I didn't know it was being shown But Matthew is seen to be the tax collector. And it's interesting about the calling of Matthew, that when Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, we read that he got up from the custom table. He forsook all and followed him. That is repentance. That is repentance. And there is no conversion. You cannot really be born again and you cannot walk in fullness of life unless you're living in perpetual repentance. You're continually sorry for the mistakes that you make. And you're continually turning to Jesus for more grace. This is the only permanent way to have peace with God. Now, some here may disagree, but I solemnly assure you that until you're aware of your sin and you turn from it and you turn to Christ constantly and continually for more grace to cover your sins, then you will never know this fullness of life, this blessedness that he's offering you. So, what have we seen so far? We're nearly through. If we're to know this blessedness of kingdom living, we must be aware of our spiritual poverty, We must accept what Jesus Christ has done for us to make us rich. And then, finally, we must access ourselves to God's continuing provision. You see, when Jesus was summing up this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 14 says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Notice, Jesus said he went home. That going home speaks of progress. It means going on. He got up from where he was and he was going in a different direction. If we're to go on with and grow up into God, we must be conscious of our dependence upon God. Now, children are dependent. All of us have been children at some time or another and we were dependent on our parents, weren't we? 
or dependent on our God, whoever raised us. But the time comes when we reach maturity and we're no longer dependent on them. But for the child of God, we're always dependent. We always need more grace. We can't live without him. You might say, I want to take back control of my life, a phrase that we use a lot. And and children say, I want to leave home. I want to be independent. I want to take control of my own life. Maybe some, some young people that are longing already to leave home that you might take control. But as a Christian, we are always dependent upon God's grace. Have you ever heard of a man called Fletcher of Maidley? Fletcher of Maidley was a, a contemporary of John Wesley. In fact, John Wesley said of him, he was the nearest thing to Christ that he had ever met. And he was mightily used in the power of the Holy Spirit. And John Wesley said, when I die, I want Fletcher to be the leader of Methodism. The trouble is, he died before John Wesley. And he had to preach. John Wesley preached at his sermon. And here he declared him to be the holiest of men. And he told this story about him. One day, Fletcher, I mean, these Anglicans, John Wesley and Fletcher, they were all Anglican ministries. They were kicked out of the Anglican church. They didn't want to start Methodism. They wanted to see the Church of England reformed and revived. It was revival they were experiencing, something we long for, we pray for. And as an Anglican minister, he had done a great deed for the state. We don't know what it was. John Wesley never said. But he did the country a great service. And so, the king's chancellor was sent to him and said, the crown wants to honour what you've done. What can we give you? Uh, Perhaps they were expecting to say, well, promote me to be a bishop. Or even make me archbishop. You know, some... And you know what, Fletcher? He sent back a message through the chancellor. I just want more grace. I just want more grace. I'm sure you didn't understand (laughs) the person that received the message, what he meant. But you do, don't you? We need more grace. You see, the temptation always is to become dependent on ourselves. There's always that tendency to rely on self. I can do this. I can do this on my own. You might have said it. You can't. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we need that grace of God to strengthen us. I believe that those 15 minutes at the beginning of every day, given to our God in your devotional time, make it more if you can. But surely you can make 15 minutes at the beginning of every day to, to make time, you have time to turn to God's word. You have time to open your heart up in prayer. For me, it takes a lot longer than that. But give him 15 minutes. Open your life by 15 minutes every day to receive more grace. That devotional time is a means of grace and we need it. To go on and to fulfill our potential. If you want to live in the fullness of life, that these Beatitudes are talking about, you need to realize that you are totally dependent and always will be on the grace of God. But I've got a vital question for you this morning. 
How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as some superman? <laughs> you know, as a, a pastoral counselor over many years, one of the things that... Oh, I, I love that picture of the cat. Don't you? Looking into the mirror, and what does he see? A lion. Now, that's a positive self-image, isn't it? How do you see yourself? But some people, like the girl looking into her mirror, looking so sad, they develop a, a negative self-image. And you know, I, I, I felt as an imperative this morning that I, I, I couldn't finish without drawing attention to a negative and a positive self-image. You know, a negative self-image is, is created in us, either by the way that we look or by the possessions that we have, the environment in which we live, or perhaps the things that people have said to us. I was forever being told by my sisters that I wasn't as clever as my brother. And I believed it for a long time. I was told by one of them that I was useless. I'd never achieve anything. And you know, after a while, like a tipping drap, a, tip, a, a dripping tap, it has an effect on you. you know, I, I grew up really believing I was ugly for years. Now, I'm not, am I? No, I'm beautiful. I, I, shall I tell you what caused me to to change my mind about the way that I saw myself? It was a verse in Ephesians 2, verse 10. That you are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good. I saw that and he opened my eyes. If God could see me as a work of art, he had created me personally to actually to fulfill some great purpose for his glory. Then what right did I have to believe that I was ugly? I had a beard for 16 years. I shaved it off. I didn't have to cover up my face that I believe for too long was ugly. I was beautiful in God's eyes. But you know, some people take pride in the way that they look. And we're back to where we began. For those that don't like the way they looked, there's a psalm for you. Can you read it with me? I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your words are what I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Oh, I tell you, you are beautiful. God looks at you and he declares you beautiful. Don't think yourself ugly. And similarly, see, some people are brought up believing that you'll never achieve anything. And they say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, we see the answer to that, don't we, in Philippians 4.13. I've already said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is God's word to you this morning. I, I had a witness in preparation that there was someone here this morning, rather than having a false sense of pride, they had negative feelings about themselves. And I want you to hear God saying, I love you. I've chosen you for a purpose. 
Take pride in my calling. Take pride in the, the grace that I've put upon you. And fulfill your potential by having a true spirit of humility. So, let me sum up. Be aware of your spiritual poverty. How we fall short spiritually. Accept the provision that Jesus Christ made for us in the cross and his resurrection. And access the provision that God has made for the rest of the journey of life. Grace is flowing towards you. And it is enough for each and every circumstance. That tax collector went home justified because he humbled himself. And this is the key to observe. We violate this most basic principle of life through the deadly sin of pride. Our modern philosophy of self-reliance and self-sufficiency has caused many to believe that man can make the grade without God. Some people argue, oh, faith is all right for, for a certain sort of emotional person, someone that needs a crutch. But you can't better a person that believes in himself. Well, you can. Let me tell you, as I close, that this self-confident generation has produced more alcoholics, more drug addicts, more criminals, more wars, more broken homes, more violence, more suicides than any other generation before it. We have failed. And we need God in Christ Jesus. We need his grace to turn things around and to make this world a better place. The rich young ruler was so filled with piety and things that he revolted that he revolted when Jesus challenged him to sell up and to follow him. All around us, there's arrogance, there's pride and selfishness. But hear from heaven this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I have a witness this morning that someone here needs to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. That you might have a true, a real appreciation of what your potential can be in Jesus Christ. You have been called. Jesus Christ is calling you this morning. He's calling you to follow him. And in following him, there is true greatness. This morning, will you hear the call? Will you hear him knocking at the door of your heart and will you say, Lord Jesus, come in. I want you to help me be the kind of person that you want me to be. Let's pray. And if this morning anything that the Lord has said through me has touched you, you've been made to realize that you're not what you ought to be and you need Jesus in your life, then make this prayer your prayer. I'm going to pray that slowly and loud. But you can pray silently in your heart. God will hear you. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for sending Jesus to be my Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for conquering the grave. Thank you for being here today. I hear you knocking on my heart's door. Please come into my life. Please come into my life. 
as my saviour to forgive me. Please come into my life as my Lord to take control of me. And please come and into my life and be my friend. Friend I've been looking for. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that most of you here this morning, you've been Christians for a long time. But I have a witness that someone prayed that prayer. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to look at me and I want you to raise your hand so I can see you clearly. You might wonder why I'm asking you to do this. It's because I want to give you some literature that will help you understand better what it is to be a Christian. Did you pray that prayer? Just raise your hand and look at me clearly. Then, Lord, I pray that you will give to us all grace, more grace, to leave this chapel this morning believing that you can help us fulfill our potential and yet to stay humble by your grace. And, Lord, we, while we're at the throne of grace, we want to come and bring to you those in the fellowship that are in need, those who are not able to be here because they're unwell. We lift them up to you this morning and ask for the blessing of your grace upon them. Heal the sick, we pray. Strengthen the weak. And restore them soon to the fellowship. For those that have struggled here this morning, they're actually here, but they're not well. I pray that even now in the sanctuary, that as they reach out to you in faith, that you will reach down from heaven and touch them. With that touch that transforms. We believe that you're the great physician. Heal the sick even in the meeting this morning, we pray. We pray for this world, this proud, arrogant world. Oh God, we need you to come down from heaven. We need you to revive your church in the midst of the years that we might demonstrate that the way of the kingdom is so different from the ways of the world. People might desire to follow Jesus. Oh, we pray that you might pour out your spirit upon our nation, that there might be a great turning to you again. Oh God, that... There might be the cry in the street, what must I do to be saved? So come down, Lord, we pray. And do, do a new work in your church and through the church. Transform our communities, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.